Songs come from our vision of home, and in a split second, they can, as though by magic, refashion for us what home is, what it was, or what we imagine it to be. Songs anchor us, they root us to family, places, and time. I'm Irla Olinard, and this is Vocal Chords, an odyssey of the voice, a global exploration of why we sing and what happens when we do sing. That song, Ashling Gal, I sang as a boy and have carried it with me through my life. As a singer, I always feel I have two voices, two lives. One on the stage in front of an audience and the other, the more personal one, connecting me right back to my beginnings in the church choir and in my own family, midst my own language and community in Kule in the West Cork Gwelthacht. Hearing songs sung in my community at home all those years ago, it was all about bringing people together. At the heart of it, for all singers, there is this place where song is not a performance, just a part of self and belonging of memory, location, and emotion. When you have a family gathering or a musical gathering, certain songs belong to somebody and you look forward to hearing somebody sing a particular song. Or if you're in the company, even if it's your favourite, you won't sing it. Sometimes somebody might start singing, maybe in a pub or maybe after a wedding or a funeral, and you suddenly get a single voice, particularly if the song is an evocative one. It can be extraordinary, and everybody in the room begins to lock into it, because songs often mean things to people. And I often carry that. 50 years later, I can hear my grandmother singing songs still. That's Francie Devine, a labour historian and folk singer, a regular in singing sessions, from Angolian traditional singers' club to the Holt Singing Circle. A man has his seasons, so why should we grieve? Although in this life we appear fine and gay, like the leaves we must wither and soon fade away. I was born in London. My father was a red in Glasgow, but from Donegal. 
My mother was English, but I always had songs in the house. My father sang Irish tunes, Irish songs, Glasgow street songs. And my mother, she sang. From the trees, Singing was always there. In full motion and appearing to be. And those that were withered, they fell from the trees. I was at Celtic Park last week, haven't been at Celtic Park for 20 odd years, and we're in a, a pub beforehand and they were singing songs. But there were old fellas around me, and just to hear them singing, even if the songs are not particularly good, but to hear their accents, I, it was my dad. My dad's dead since 1997, but I was listening to my dad singing. And I got quite emotional. And it is a wonderful physical exercise, it's a wonderful emotional exercise. And I think I always feel better after I've sung. And whether that's greeting for somebody or whatever, I always feel better when I've sung. Days ago, they were all in full motion and appearing to grow. When a frost came upon them and withered them all. And the rains came upon them, and down they do fall. That's Francie himself singing there. I grew up in a home where everyone sang. My grandmother's sister was Elizabeth Cronin. My own grandmother lived with us and was a good singer herself. And her sister Bess Cronin was the well-known Ballyvourney singer recorded by the American folklorist Alan Lomax. Uh, that, well, that, that reminded me of something else now, too. And it was like this. But everybody sang. It was just a normal, social and personal thing to do. You know, I was one of 12 kids, 10 boys, two girls. And every one of us boys went through Sean O'Reilly's Corcoule. At one stage, there must have been seven of the Olinard brothers in the choir. You'd definitely have missed us if we weren't there. It was outside our home. That was the place I discovered my voice. Across the world, people such as myself are called Shannos singers, as is Elizabeth Cronin. But you know, we didn't call it that back then. It was just singing. It was what we did the sound of our home, our place, that weave of familial and regional voices, our language, our bloss, the very taste of our sound. And sometimes it feels like the sound of a place that no longer exists, except perhaps inside of us, tugging, holding us in place. So now I'm traveling across to the Aran Islands, to Inish Moor, to a wonderful singer, Trasani Violon, to explore what singing, what Shannos means to her. Marhele apogo, 
Kavulmet exactly. Tamut shevi less bile more hironan. Inyen shmor. Agus arhuktus the hail and sha. Na sha the vile ruhush. Sha himuel duhush rugu agus to yun chame. Ik me fa bort is a wahit pek. Well, I started off singing in the local pub. Well, I think the first time I sang in public was at a wedding and I was only about 12 or 13. But the neighbours knew that my mother was a great singer, Shano singer, and so was my father. So they all thought then, well, the family should be able to sing. So that's how it started with me. I was at a wedding and come on, sing a song. Your mother was able to sing, so you give us a song. Well, the first Shano song I sang from my mother when I was very young was Donalog, and it's still my favorite song. And I learned that when I was about 10 or so. It was her song as well. And she'd be always invited to weddings here. And she had another name for it, like Hugmagrawat, and slightly different version. So she'd be always singing that. She'd be singing it here, I remember, while she'd be sitting there knitting. I think that's why I took it up, because it was her song, and I wanted to do it because, because of that, more than anything. Were you tight with your mum? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was a lovely singer, all right, and even until the day she died, she'd be sitting there and she'd be humming away, you know, and always looking for new songs. If you want to know all beautiful Irishes, learn song. Learn song, yeah, that's it. And you like the sounds of the language and of the words in Gaelic, it's really lovely. I, I mean, I have the same feeling as you. you know? mm, yeah. I can sing in English, but I'm a different person than singing English. Yeah. I'm not really myself. That's, yeah, it's true. I wouldn't feel the same as well, either singing in English. And I think it wouldn't it's because be so deep in me, I think. It's inside you, isn't it? Yeah. Someone said to me recently that. Your body grows up around the language, the sound of it. Mm. It actually, it's the container for the language. Yeah. Yeah. So to sing in another language is, you're asking your body something it simply can't do. Mm. That's it, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I wouldn't feel at home, you know, that much singing in English, really. As I roved out on a bright May day For to hear the birds sing sweet <laughs> I laid myself down on a new garden wall For to hear twilovers sweet Well, I would say that I'm totally influenced by my Inishon roots. I think anybody who knows me singing knows that I put a huge emphasis on songs from Inishon. That's what I want to sing. 
I want to tell something about myself. I want to sing in my own accent. It's a sort of being part and being proud of a place that you're from. And it's very much association with people you've learned the songs from. Everything that I've learned, I've learned from people that I've sat beside. So I learned from older singers. I was in their company. A lot of them are dead now. So I feel a real sense of responsibility towards those singers and towards a tradition that has had a shaky number of years unaccompanied singing in Irish language or in the English language has had a shaky time for you are engaged to another fair and your heart's no longer mine I'm Grace Toland I'm the librarian here in the Irish Traditional Music Archive in Dublin but as well as that I'm also would be known as a traditional singer originally from Inishon in County Donegal. Grew up in a place called Clamani, a small town. Uh, my father and mother owned a local pub, one of those where everybody gathered. And in a small village, pubs tended to be a regathering point for people. One of my earliest exposures to singing was wandering around as a child around the pub. I grew up in a house where my granny lived with us. She was a singer as well. My mother sang. And it was just kind of in the background. I wasn't taught singing. It wasn't anything that was particularly made a big deal of, but it was always there. Any show in itself, we could say now, looking back, as an area that was really rich in the English language ballad singing tradition. So I'll climb up to yon high treetop and I'll rob the phoenix nest. The songs are great and they do all sorts of things, but it's that sense of camaraderie, that sense of just for three or four hours that you're creating a really special place that you and a, a sense of time and quietness that you don't get in your life very often. And not only to sing, but to listen. I think that's the biggest part of singing that I learned is that you've got to listen. I feel that listening to singers, listening to songs, opening yourself to loads of things is what feeds you to become the singer, whatever singer you're supposed to become in your life. And I found as I went along, it wasn't about the singing in itself. It was that thing about enjoying yourselves, enjoying each other's company, all of those sort of things that were so important. With the bird in every hand to the wee boy I love best. For tea it stands for Tom, my dear, and Jay, it stands for John, and W stands for Willie, my true love, he is the only one. In a show in singer Grace Toland on the company of singing. Grace talks of the joy of singing in her own bloss, her own voice. But that yearning for songs in our own mother tongue is not just about belonging and roots. It's about memory. Laddie, my lad, when you gone at the tail of the plough and the day's drawing, when the barn and yellow's a war that was saints allow on the braze of when. I'm all about getting people to recognise and listen to the sound of their own voices within their own community because I think it's fundamental to a lot of the other problems that are going on in communities that people are not equipped to feel confident about themselves and, and comfortable in their own skin. 
There was nae twa lads with the grampians doon to the day that could best us twa. At the pot they had a dance on the field on a fit by day we could sort them up. I'm Steve Byrne and I'm a singer but I'm also an archivist, a community arts worker. I play in a group called Malinky from Scotland and just interested in songs and singing in general and how people express themselves and the, the language that they use to do that. Well, where I grew up is actually a Scots-speaking community, so it's kind of almost Aberdeenshire dialect that people probably find hard to understand. It's a little bit less full-on in, in Angus. Uh, we're technically the South Northern Scots dialect area, if you want to be particular, but certainly the language of my mother's side of the family in around that area was very strongly Scots, and that's the language I identify with coming back to it now and examining my singing. I suppose my parents were both interested in the folk revival in Scotland and partly in Ireland at the time. My dad is from Dublin and uh, we always had records around the house. When I was maybe about eight or nine years old, I would have started going out to the concert parties in the community with my mum and auntie. And I suppose that I took part in competitions and performances at school. Um, we would, around the end of January, always have a Burns Night kind of celebration and you would learn something in advance of that and perform it and you would get a wee Burns Federation certificate and, and all of this. The whole thing about language in Scotland certainly is one about confidence and awareness. People find it difficult to have confidence in speaking in Scots. It's not fully accepted as a, a language and of course there's no real definition of a language. I heard the other day, you know, the, the great phrase that a language is a dialect with an army. So it's just all about getting people's confidence up about speaking in their own voice, their own tongue. And that's where my interest as a singer comes into play as well. Tell the last line gloaming she'll creep on us bait and fawn how the mems. Tell the last line gloaming she'll creep on us bait and fawn how the mems. I think there's a respect issue still to be sorted out in terms of people thinking that their own culture is valuable. And, and Lomax spoke about that, Alan Lomax, about the idea of when you play people's culture back to them and you give them a space on the airwaves alongside all the other stuff, it changes something in people. And from Francie Devine, I got the phrase, dig where you stand. And that's been my mantra for the last three years, working with some of the kids in our broth to actually say, look, we're not going to sing Scottish songs, we're going to sing our broth songs, which is a level further down. And that kind of distinction doesn't even really exist to the level it should, I think, in, in Scottish society. This is a song that is just about working in a local mill, and the, and the point about the song, Dig Where You Stand, mantra, in connection with that, is it's about a building that everybody in the town knows, but nobody knew there was a song about it. Now the sturdy mills for poverty, but the brothic mills for pie. The brothic mills a bonny wee mill, doon by the barren side. And a wa wee malady, it's a wa wee himmel gang, yes a wa wee malady, for he's a nice young man. Yeah, it's really simple. It's one of these kind of like, you know, love songs that's really it's actually part of another song family altogether but the fact it mentions the brothic mill Aberbrothic is the old name for our broth you've immediately got hooks to speak to kids and to wider sections of society about the area that they, they come from and it means something you know if you just scratch the surface and you'll get into the language into the local culture but the fact that there's a song about their own town a wee town of 25,000 people that is kind of nondescript there's no big industries or anything there anymore the kids are amazed and you hear that and they're, they're singing. No! 
But language is also about politics, and songs can be a weapon. Often, the first thing that happens in oppression is that the song of a people in their own voice is silenced. In South Africa, music in the black community has always been very essential as an identity factor and a way of expressing yourselves, which could not be stopped. And in the days where people were demonstrating against apartheid, songs were there because you could move in demonstrations, you could sing, and it gave a common sense that we are together and we express ourselves. And looking from the other side, those you know, police people or military people who tried to stop demonstration, the combination of people moving and singing and even dancing, it's very efficient. You really see like a big wave and there's no way you can get things to move in a wave unless you have songs. My name is Ole Reitel. I am the executive director of an international organization called Free Muse, which uh, advocates freedom of musical expression. Songs get people together. This is where they find something in common. This is something that adds to their identity. And that is also why when you ban people's expressions, you ban part of their identity. My dad was an activist. He went to Robben Island for 12 years to fight for the struggle in apartheid in South Africa at the time. And now he just works with the government. My mother is a teacher, comes from a Christian background. Her father is a reverend. So I've got the rich Christian background. And then my dad was sort of like the typical African guy. My name is Nobundu Mpahlaza. And I'm a singer, an actress, and, well, dancer back then. I don't think it works anymore. I grew up in East London in a township called Mtanzane. I'm from the Click Clan, Aban Bagwakosa, which is the Clickers, Okakakakoku. And it's a small town. It's called East London because the weather is sometimes just like London. The major influence in my life that led me to music is because my dad is an activist, you know, and we grew up in song. Everything was spoken in song. There's a thing in South Africa that is called itoitoi, where people, when they march on the streets, they're not carrying plank cards, you know, they are actually marching, jumping up and down. We would walk out as kids and we'll join. We don't even know what they're marching for, but we're joining them and then the queue gets bigger and the crowd is getting massive and you don't know where you're going. So finally when you get there and it's over, you're like, gosh, we've come so long and we're kids. And you're thinking, oh man, 
I don't know how I got here because the song was carrying me and it was um, like music like Asiboyiki, uh, hi. Hi, hi, Asiboyiki, hi. So the, the leader will say, we're not scared of them. And, and the crowd is going, hi, which means no, 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 you know. And this song is going to carry us all the way to wherever we're going. And that's the thing, because one thing that we are big in in South Africa, and especially with the Kosha culture, is chanting. We can chant anything. Songs don't have to have words. I've got my own child now who's at home. She speaks closer as well, because what happens in South Africa now, we're more prone now to speaking English, and especially the closer people are the ones who speak the most English. I speak closer to my child when she starts, once I pick her up from crash, nursery, and I see her, I'm like, nice, bye, teacher, and then we get into the car, and I say to her, when she starts English, I'm like, I can't hear you, which goes, andiguva, you know, so that then she converts into closer, because it's, it's important to keep the language going. I grew up in a society where during the apartheid regime we had an education called Bantu, that means the education for blacks only. So we grew up under the Bantu education, whereby all the schools were required to sing. And we will have choir competitions every year, and that was compulsory. Singing was your subject at school as well. You'll be forced to sing. And you'll sing at school, you'll also sing at church as well. You know, we grew up under corporal punishment. So we were punished not to sing. And honestly, I hated singing because of that. And as I was growing up, I started being a soprano as a small boy in the choir. And then I, as my voice changes, you're a young boy, you become a teenager, puberty and all this kind of, the voice breaks and all this kind of stuff. And then I became a tenor. And then after tenor, then I became a high baritone, you know. And I started loving music at some point. That's Otto Maidi a baritone with the Cape Town Opera Company. We met when the company was touring with its production of Showboat. And I was captivated by Otto's version of Old Man River. A song first sung by the great African-American singer, Paul Robeson. When I sing this piece expressing the oppression that I've experienced, you know, I've worked for white folks and the treatment was not that great. They will show you that you're black, you're nothing. I worked for a guy for 10 to 15 years. I've never been into his house. I was not allowed to enter his house. They will give me my food through the window because for them their house was too holy for me. And when it's raining, they will put me with the car in the garage with their dogs, things like that. So with my own experience with that, that's why I portray this character in that, because those things come back to me and they really help me to portray the character. Even today we are liberated. But that's the kind of things that I also put in my story, that this is what happened to me, this is my story. Because people ask me, when you start singing this piece, you become somebody else. But it's because of I believe in what I'm singing. And at some point, I don't, I don't sing it for the audience. I sing it for myself. And the audience just believe it. 
because it's true. This is what happened. This is my history. This is where I come from. I get weary and sick of trying. I'm tired of living and scared of dying. But old man River, he just keeps rolling along. Old Man River, a white man's version of a black anthem. Robeson uses his voice very powerfully to connect his own family roots in American slavery and the black spirituals with those of other struggling communities across the world, including here in Ireland and in Wales. been a fan of, of Paul Rosen and the opportunity to sing with him was really out of this world and I can remember when we first met him in, in the Royal Festival Hall for rehearsal in the afternoon of the concert and at the time I was in my 30s and I was uh, around about six foot tall you know but when I met him, I was looking up at him like that. He was a big man. Come in, but carry me home. But a charming man also. And to sing with him was a uh, oh, dream fulfilled. I'm Jack Palmer. I'm 91 years old. I've been singing with the Kumbar Choir for a record 64 years. You see, Paul Robeson had quite a lot of contact with Wales. If you remember the picture, The Proud Valley, that was shot in Wales, Paul Robeson played the part of a miner and he had a rapport with the Welsh mining industry. Robson was on tour with Showboat in London in 1928 when he heard the South Wales miners singing outside his hotel. They had marched to protest over conditions in the mines. And Robeson went down and ended up singing with them. Come in for to 
Welsh choirs were already singing black spirituals, like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Today, the Cumbach Choir honoured that concert for African freedom in 1960 when Robeson performed with them at the Royal Festival Hall. I think working in a coal mine, it's a society of its own. You rely on a lot of other people for your own safety and effectiveness when you're underground. That transmits itself actually when you're going down underground and coming back up in the cage together. There's a bond, a unity. And in the early days when choirs were really formed, there wasn't much else for leisure within society. And so the churches and chapels took a major part of the time of the, the people, particularly the miners, because they wanted to thank God that they were still alive and amen or amen would be said privately to themselves coming up from the cage and in public as a group then in the churches and chapels afterwards in, on the Sundays. And I think they wanted to extend that through to something that they could build on and make larger and form additional groups then, which basically were the choirs. Denzel Bowler, I'm the Vice Chairman of Cumbach Male Voice Choir and I live in Plasdrow at the edge of Aberdeen. If home is the first source of song, then maybe next comes church and work. Song brings people together. The combined power of singing voices got the mining community through tough days. For my time, it was very, very tough. You had to be underground by a certain time, otherwise you'd be sent home with no pay. You'd spend your seven and a quarter or seven and a half hours underground. But it was tough, there's no toilets underground, you take your own food down. There's no drinking water, so you'd have to take your own drinking water. You'd be weighed down not just by the miner's lamp and the helmet and the lamp on top with the battery, but later on in life as well, you'd have a self-rescuer, which is like a breathing apparatus kit in case there was any noxious gases around. So it was quite tough. But it's not just the what you have to carry around, and you're usually in constant darkness other than your own lamp. But it was the claustrophobic environment, and I, I remember once crawling along a tunnel about a metre high and a metre wide, because the actual ground had lifted up below and to the sides. So it was like crawling through a, a metre diameter tube for about 200 yards. You couldn't turn around, you couldn't be able to do it. You'd have to have crawled out backwards. And I do recall coming home and writing a little story and a little picture exactly of that feeling and, and the claustrophobicness of it. That early empathy between the Cumbach Choir and Paul Robeson continues today. They have a long friendship with the South African Sinestra Male Choir, 
who they met in Ireland. Kumbachmelkwan is very special to us. There's a very significant history about us and the Kumbach, which dates back to 1988, when Senestra Choir was not formed yet. And I was singing in a choir from South Africa, a mixed choir with ladies, and I bumped into the Kumbachmel Choir guys in Cork Island in a Cork music festival, and Kumbach was there. On the closing day of that festival, all choirs of the world converged at the Metropole Hotel as we were sitting down with some few men from South Africa from the Davidton choir that I was singing in. We were singing some interesting, exciting South African tunes. And the men of the Kumbach Mel Choir were in the vicinity and they heard us sing and they joined us with combined tables. Guinness started flowing and uh, we sang those South African tunes. Among those men I met, I won't forget, it was Peter Williams, the late Peter Williams, who was chairman of the Kumbach Mel Choir then. And then what significantly struck me then was when Peter Williams said to me, Temba, can you be able to form a male choir in South Africa who will be friends with us? Temba Malopa of the Sinestra Male Choir singing Nkosi Sikaleli Africa with the Kumbach Choir, showing the power of song to bring people together across language, race and country. Singers, it seems, are their own community. But while singing in our own tongue, language or dialect is part of our soul, just how essential is it to be literally understood? that because the songs that I sing are written in certain languages that affects the way I hear them and that affects the way that people hear them but I wouldn't say that language is the most important in solo singing I'm always on the music side I think that language does affect us but it's not the main element I think that it's important to know what you're singing but it's also important to interpret what you're singing interpret the words the way you like through the music. It's possible to uh, completely turn inside out a, a joyful text by your voice and make it sad or make it make people cry, although you're singing about something very profoundly happy. I think that language is important, but I wouldn't say it's the, the most important thing. Polina Shepard sings traditional Jewish songs in Russian and Yiddish. We're talking about musical language as much as we're talking about 
language, like text language itself. I think that they are hand in hand, they are together in folk music, certainly. In my own music I try to mix, I write a Yiddish sounding melody and Russian text to it, or the other way around, which is a very interesting mix. It's interesting for me to witness how that music develops, because it develops once it's taken on stage and when people hear it. There is an interesting effect of all the consonants and how they work with the music itself. But to me it's all about how I sing it, how I present it, what energy I put into the voice ultimately. Yiddish music is a bit special because of the Holocaust, because of the history of the Jewish people. We had a big gap, especially in the Soviet Union where I grew up. There was no Jewish culture at all. So when I started to explore this culture, there was zero knowledge of what not just Yiddish, but Jewish culture was. And this music is very marginal. It's special. It needs to be kept alive. It needs to be encouraged. But I think this is happening basically in many cultures anyway. So we are like others. That responsibility that Paulina feels to pass on the sonic tradition of her culture is one that's shared by many folk singers. We sing to keep our sense of home alive. I really loved Donalo because it was the first real Shano song I learned of my mother. I don't know anyone else on the island who sings it really, but I teach it in the schools myself, so the younger children would have it now. They would have my version. Some, some beautiful words in, in the singing, really, and a lot of young people would not understand some of them now because they don't hear it, those words. So I think if the language goes really that, I'm afraid the singing would go as well. I think that there's a societal belief that somehow we've recorded the world that's around us, when in fact I think there's still so much more out there. Although we're so much more informed and aware, I still think there's a lot of valuable stuff amongst the members of communities around Scotland and further afield, actually, that still needs to be recorded. But I think that we have a responsibility, wherever we come from in the world, to look around us and dig where we stand, because nobody else is going to do it for us. So I would be urging anyone, record your granny, record your mammy, record anybody, and ask about the songs, you know. Unless the song is caught at the time, you'll never know what happened because it's just gone in the wind, it's gone with your breath. And unless a tradition is rejuvenating itself, unless it's got access to material, it can tend to dwindle. And for a community, I think, to keep that sense of its own self and identity and the songs, you really need projects like the Inishone Song Project, especially where they were, people were caught in their natural environment singing. Trasany Villon, Steve Byrne, and Grace Tolan there. Black is the color of my true love's hair. I think it's growing. I definitely think it's growing. There's a return to it. 
You know, for Christy Moore, it's been his life's work, keeping the songs sung, bringing them back into the circle. I love the ground whereon she stands. I love my love, and well she knows. I had heard folk songs, even though I didn't know there were folk songs when I was a small boy. It was all kind of all mixed up together. But the first time I became aware of the culture that I've grown to love would, would have been when a neighbour came back from England or America with a Clancy Brother album. That was a big turning point. Never heard anything like this before. And then as a young lad, maybe 16, going to hear the Clancy Brothers in the Olympia. To this day, I've never been as excited at a gig. You say you were about 16 when that happened? Yeah. That was a key moment and it piqued your interest to the extent that what happened next? Did you go looking for things? Well, around that time, I heard that Donald Lunny played a guitar and that Donald Lunny was playing in a bit of a band in Newbridge and he taught me my first chords. I remember it was C and G7 and there's about three or four songs you could play with just those two chords. That's how I got going and that was so exciting. And then we started going to Flakeholes and uh, started playing a bit with Donald and started discovering songs started going to the library, I remember getting the Joyce collection and then getting the first column of Lockdown. I remember Donald and I had been really excited at finding this song, The Cur of Kildare, in the Joyce collection and of actually starting to do it. Oh, the winter it is past And the summer's come at last and the birds, they are singing on the trees. Just as a matter of interest, because I don't know how this happened, how did you meet Donald first? Were you neighbours or friends? Or? Yeah, we, we, the Lunnies and the Moors lived a couple of hundred yards apart. I knew all his brothers and sisters and his father and his mother, and uh, it was just one of those, those quirks of, of geography, I suppose. But really got to know him through ballads. Our friendship started with music, accompaniment. I mean, Donald was so far ahead of the posse. Not just in Newbridge, but even when he came to Dublin. He was so accomplished. Of my true love's hair Her lips are like Some roses fair smile and the gentlest hands I love the ground whereon she stands 
when you sang as a family, did you get a sense that singing bounded you, made family stronger? Did it have a function like that beyond just enjoyment? Not then it didn't. Not then it didn't, we just did it. Uh, but I think subsequent, it, it has done. Like occasionally, thankfully the six of us are still on the island and occasionally we get together and we always sing. Particularly if there's nobody else around. If there's anybody else around, we don't do it. But if the six of us are in a room, somebody will want to start singing. I remember a few years ago, we were in Barry's house. We sang for hours. And there were songs that we'd totally forgotten about. And yet we began to sing them together. And it was really beautiful. And it really brought us back. It was a lovely few hours. When will we learn? When will we learn? When will we learn? When will we learn? We all have our own families now. If there's 50 or 60 of us together, the only ones who really want to hear the six of us singing are the six of us. It isn't precious to anybody else, but it is to us. Who stole your youth, who stole your life And yet you see more clear than we do You've shown us how to win the fight The thought just occurs to me that I am also involved in another world of singing where I am out on the road, a professional singer, with all that that entails, with publicity, with posters, photographs, production, but I almost see them as two separate things. One is what I do, it's my life's work, the other is something that I kind of do for relaxation, and they are kind of separate, but I don't want to deny the other one. In folk music, this idea of gathering songs, this idea of going to meet the people who carry them, who have them, it's almost like a quest, a journey. Well, I, I still do it. I still go to gatherings where I can hear singers. I just like the company of people who love songs. I go to the Goal Inn as often as I can. I love it. And there's others that I hope to go to when I get more time. I just like being in the company of singers of songs who are doing it purely for the love of the song. They're not looking for a recording contract or a gig. It's just singing and listening. I can sit down and I can listen to singers for hours. Is that kind of tradition, is that a family of sorts too? Oh, it is, yeah. When you meet up with kindred spirits, it's a very comfortable place to be. I'm thinking particularly of the Goline. There's such respect there and there's such love for song and singer there but great respect. It doesn't matter how good a singer you are, or how bad a singer you are. If you get stuck halfway through, they'll encourage you to start the verse again. And I love that. When will we learn? When will we learn? When will we learn? When will we so is there a difference between the singer and the performer? Francie Devine and Grace Toland talked about the company of singers. It's something I know myself well, that primary joy of coming together in song. 
In my case, my own family, where everyone sings, and when we get together, we just sing. And then some of us, like Christy and myself, we end up earning our living from song. But in the end, we sing because it's part of us. As Sinead O'Connor says, it is us. Someone I've always admired, and I guess so many singers have looked up to him, is the late Darajo Kahan. He was for me at any rate, the quintessential singer's singer. Well, I'll give you an example from Darach. He, he came back one year. Uh, I, I was living in Bayside at the time, and he sang at an Oreda commemoration in the Gaiety, and he was staying with me. So uh, afterwards, a who's who of musicians came back out to the house, and it was absolutely amazing for me to be sitting in my house with all these famous people. A cousin of Darach's was at the far end of the room from Ratkan. I won't mention names. And I suppose about an hour, a fairly intense music and song took place, and there was a natural sort of break where people needed another drink or a fag or a Jimmy Riddle or whatever. And from one end of the room, Darach looks down the room and he shouts up to the cousin, cousin and hour on a vicinish. Give us a song now, you know. So this guy began to sing. Now, he hadn't got a note in his head. His version or his, his notion of a good song was blanket on the ground or streets of Chicago. So when he began to sing this sort of country and Irish song, all the worthies in the room decided that was the moment to get up. So when he started to sing, there was a general movement in the room and Dara stopped everybody and they were all there for him. And he said, uh, what, what are you all doing? This man has sat for an hour while you did your best. Could you not sit for three minutes while he does his best? And that, first of all, tells you a lot about Dara Kahin, but it also tells you in that circumstance, in a room where song is in its most natural environment, people singing for mutual pleasure as friends and so on, shouldn't they have sat still? And he was every bit as good in terms of his capacity as some of the great people in the room thought they were. So I think that to me, I would, I'd, I'd like to think you never get airs above your station. You know, to be, That's why I think if you decide, and I've known friends that have done this, to become performer, it becomes quite different. And I'd, whilst I'd admire them, you're crossing a threshold in a way, you know. Because I don't think really that's the point of singing in a way. You know, like, it's nice, okay, when people like it, but for me, it's, I borrow from Darach, he sang because he sang. Francie Devine and the great traditional singer Darach O'Connor. To me, Darach was a bit of a hero too. He remains an outstanding example of the glories of the Connemara song culture. I had the good fortune to meet him when I was in my early 20s, not long before he died. We met up in Dublin and he took great pleasure in showing me all the pubs he'd been turfed out of for singing in the Shandos. In the 50s, he said, it wasn't a welcome sound. It didn't quite fit our vision of ourselves. 
it was seen a bit like the language itself, as part of a shameful past we wanted to shed. Among his many great songs, his version of Oroshe de Vahavale is for me an anchor. I've sung it myself, as in fact we often did in Kor Kulay, Sean O'Reilly being a great admirer of Darcho Cahoin. But those dark, deep tones bring me right back into the source of our song, our homeland. It's as though his voice is carved from the rock itself. The song itself, its reinvention from its roots in a ballad about Bonnie Prince Charlie, to an homage to Grace O'Malley, Grani Whale, and then in our age, a rebel ballad, where the hero becomes Podrick Pierce. It's part of the way we use and reinvent songs to tell our stories. It also holds a dark lens, a song which can be used both as an inspiring, unifying force and one which can be a rallying cry of separation. To quote Bob Dylan, we can't change the present or the future. We can only change the past and we do it all the time. We use songs to shape our past, to define us. In our next episode, I'll be exploring the stories we tell when we sing and the power they hold to move us. Chapter Sayo, we are